Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7, and I'm going to make a game time decision, so it's going to be 15 to 17 this time. <laughs> um, it's on page 22 of your pew Bibles. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. For her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she'll be the mother of nations. Kings of people will, will come to you from her. Abraham fell to face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? So, God here has renamed two people right in the middle of their lives. That seems like a kind of silly thing for God to do, right? But in those days, a person's name was totally bound up with their destiny as a person. When a mother named her child, she was saying something about who that child already was, often because of how they were conceived or who that child, and then they're also saying who that child will be. You see it all throughout Genesis. The characters take naming their children very seriously. There's an explanation for the name of practically every child that is born in Genesis. Like Abram's name, which means exalted father. Now, this name would have had to have been bitterly ironic for him. Because it means either one of two things. On the one hand, it could mean that his mother felt that he was destined to be an exalted father. But of course, Abram had no children and eventually had to go to great lengths even just to have Ishmael as a son. Up to this point, he was never able to have a son through his own wife. You can imagine how cynical that would have made him. On two different occasions by now, God promised Abram to make good on his name, that not only would he have children, but he would have descendants as numerous as the grains of the sand on the beach or of the stars in the sky. Abram thought that maybe God wanted him to take matters into his own hands. So he decided to have a child through Hadar. It had become obvious that his wife, Sarai, would never have children since she was over 90 years old. See, when we read the Bible, we can probably read Genesis 12 to 17 in about half an hour. But you have to remember that for Abram, the time between the first time he was called by God and this passage was decades. God called him to leave everything behind and promised him that he would have children and descendants and that he would save the world through him. 
But for Abram, he heard from God a grand total of twice in those couple of decades. And still practically nothing came of it. At this point, you can understand if the childless, exalted father, Abram, with a terribly ironic name, would be completely cynical. The name Abram would, could also have to do with the honoring of his forefathers, his ancestors. It could mean that he was named after one of his forefathers who was an exalted father. But this also would have been ironic. Abram was called by God in chapter 12 to give up everything, to leave the house and land of his fathers, simply based on a promise by God. And he did it, and now his very name is a reminder of all that he has given up. He's given up the exalted fathers of his homeland. He's given up his light to the great chain of being in Ur, and has instead stuck out on his own and wandered around in a foreign land just because this God told him to. And for what? He left everything for God, and it doesn't seem like God has lived up to his promise. So God says, once again, that Abram would have a lot of children, a lot of descendants. Now, Abram's probably thinking they would already have had a lot of descendants through Ishmael at this point. And God doesn't only promise that, but he tells Abram that he would go by a new name. No longer would he just be an exalted father, that bitterly ironic name for a childless man living far from home. He would be the father of many nations. But think about that. That's even more ironic. At least he did say that Abram really was a father at this point, even if his child wasn't through his wife. But to call him the father of many nations when he has just one child, imagine if you're Abraham and you have to go up to everyone you know and say, hey man, I know I've been going as Abram for my entire life and I'm almost 100 years old, uh, but I really want to go by something else now because God told me to. And Abram's friend says to Abraham, I mean, it sounds kind of weird, but I get it. You know, your name is really kind of sad. Uh, since it doesn't seem like you're destined to be an exalted father at this point. So what do you want to go by now? And Abraham says, the father of many nations. Do you hear how absurd that sounds? For somebody who is struggling to have kids this entire time, who is 100 years old and probably should just retire, to say that he's been given an entire new destiny as the father of many nations, he would seem to be completely insane. It sounds ambitious, to say the least. So then verses 15 to 17 say, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah should be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Teens of people shall come from her. Now, it's important to note at this point that we have no idea what Abraham is thinking. For the first 16 verses of this chapter, we're kept pretty much in the dark about Abraham's thoughts. God has given a big, long monologue promising the whole world to Abraham. Abraham seems to be reverent in the presence of God, but beyond that, we have no idea how Abraham has responded. We're meant to be in a bit of suspense until the narrator breaks the suspense with this verse. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, this laugh that Abraham had was probably not a happy one. Generally, the word for laughter that's used here is talking about a more derisive or mocking laugh. It was probably something more like the mocking laughter I have when I watch the commanders mess up again. <laughs> Abraham has probably gotten real cynical about God promising the moon every couple of years and then never hearing from him again. At least before, the things that God were promising were theoretical possibilities. 
It was possible that Ishmael would become the dad of a lot of children and that they would grow into a huge family in a giant nation. But now God is promising that Abraham's 90-year-old wife would have children, and that's just not possible. It's ridiculous. And remember, Abraham didn't have thousands and thousands of years of God's promises coming true to fall back on. He didn't have the Bible or anything like that. For all he knew, God was just like all the gods he worshipped back in Mesopotamia. Maybe this God was a trickster. Maybe he just liked promising the world and giving nothing back. That would make a lot of sense. This God really was quite funny, saying ridiculous things that a 90- and 100-year-old couple would have children. Whatever the case, what God was saying was ridiculous. And Abraham probably was just about done with the whole thing. Abraham left his forefathers to become an exalted father and apparently hitched his wagon to some trickster god. It's kind of a darkly funny story. It's easy to tell Abraham just to have faith, but you can see why he doubted things. But we often feel the same way about what God promises, too. We become Christians because God has promised us the moon. He said that we would inherit the entire earth. He said that he would return and set the whole world right. He would change each of us to become more like Jesus. He would make us a part of a community that loves God and loves each other and becomes a model for what the new world coming is going to look like. And we have been assured that God keeps his promises. Now, that's great for the first couple days or months or even years of being a Christian. But eventually, you look at the way things are and you have a hard time seeing God's promises coming true. The world looks like it's going downhill, not uphill. The community or church that God has given us is wracked with infighting, and we don't know how to solve it all. It doesn't have the full peace that we wanted. And we can't even complain too much because even we don't look as much like Jesus as we thought we would by now. And the same thing is true for all of us during Lent, especially. Abraham began to follow God because God promised him the whole world. He was promised blessing and descendants and land. He was even promised things we find out later that were never verbalized to him because he never could have understood them. Through Abraham, the whole world was going to be saved from sin and death and evil. And we became Christians because in Christianity, we recognize that God was promising the whole world. We don't do this just for fun. We didn't do this on a whim. Christianity isn't a hobby for us. We became Christians because we're dead serious that God is simply doing incredible things in this world. And we want those things for ourselves. God has promised in Christ that we all would one day become perfect. Not just better people, but truly perfect. And what that means isn't just that uh, we don't sin or that we get God off our backs, but that we become a whole different kind of human. That we become a glorified and exalted being that if you didn't know better, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship. We come to look like the God who became a human being. We are called to ever increasingly more joy in the simple obedience of God. We're promised eternal life and a life which is totally different from the life we already have. We're promised a new heavens and a new earth where evil and unrighteousness, both inside and outside of ourselves, have died and every tear is wiped away from our eyes because the dwelling place of God is with humanity and he's never going to leave. As assurance that Abram was going to get all that he promised, and he was promised a lot, all he got for a while was just a new name. And the same thing is true for us. We were promised the whole world, 
And for now, a lot of times, we just have to be content with the small joys that come from obedience. The little glimpses here and there of the new heavens and the new earth. And noticing every once in a while that we really have improved and are becoming more obedient to God. But during Lent, we take a look at ourselves really soberly and think, how have I really changed in order to look more like Jesus? Have things actually changed noticeably? Am I any closer now to who God is making me to be when he returns than when I first became a Christian? And I do think the answer to those questions is yes, but certainly not as much as I'd like to say. Sometimes I look at what I feel like God is telling me to do, and I think that I need a heck of a lot more spiritual maturity just for the next year, let alone for a lifetime. Lent is a really productive time to be a Christian, but it also can be a discouraging one. Because every single year, you have 40 days specifically dedicated to repentance. And you come back to it every year. You'd think you'd say, at the end of those 40 days, phew, I sure am glad I won't ever have to repent again. But then the calendar rolls around and Lent comes back and you realize, yeah, I still really have a lot to repent for. It's easy to think that nothing has changed and that you'll be stuck as the same person forever. God has promised us a whole lot, just like he did for Abraham. And it can be hard not to get cynical when it feels like we've done the whole Christian thing for a long time and haven't really gotten what was promised yet. It's at that moment that's important to keep in mind that God really was eventually true to his promises to Abraham. It took a really long time until it really looked like it was too late. He was promised land, descendants, and blessing. By the time he died, he had a kid but certainly not descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore or stars in the sky. He had land, but only really enough land to, for a plot of land to bury his wife and his, for his own tomb. He was blessed, but only in small ways by the end of his life. It would take centuries to find out that Abraham had fathered many great nations, kings and princes, and that his line would give birth to the savior of the world. Abraham stepped out in faith in great ways, and he ultimately planted trees whose shade he would never actually sit under, but which, which would bear fruit millennia later. But Abraham's greatest virtue in the end was hope, a persistence that never stops having faith in God, knowing that he will make good on his promises one way or another. We may just be called to the same thing, stepping out in faith for God and never really seeing the impacts of our lives while we're still on this earth to plant trees whose shade we will never sit under. We may have nothing to hold on to except for the Christian hope that the God who loves us and sent Jesus to save us will make it all worth it someday in ways that we can never understand even if God explained it to us now. We have no assurance that goodness will win and that evil will be defeated except that it is in the character of God to make good on his promises and he has given us new names as children of God. It's probably going to happen a lot more slowly than we would like. That's okay because love is a slow process. The easiest way to fix the world would be to destroy it and remake it again, just like that. The easiest way to fix me or you is to destroy us and make a new us. But love takes time, and God is going to fulfill his promises as fast as he can. And so it's important sometimes during Lent to look at the light at the end of the tunnel which is the resurrection which took place on Easter Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead 
victorious over sin in the grave. And this is the assurance that God will raise us up and transform us to look like the perfect resurrected Jesus. Right in the middle of the history, God has declared the end of history, that our inevitable death will have no hold on us, that Satan will be exposed as a fraud, and that everyone who recognizes the authority of the king on the cross will rise with him. We are dust, and to dust we shall return, but God will raise us up. And if God will raise us up, he has already risen in our hearts. We have already appropriated Christ's resurrection as our own when we were baptized. Because ultimately, Abraham's faith is not all that different from our faith. Paul says in Romans, That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on the grace that is guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness, or necrosis in Greek, which means deadness, of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver, considering the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So you see how Paul says that Abraham, even though he knew nothing about Jesus or about the resurrection, still had the same faith that we have. Paul says that Abraham, in some odd sense, believed in the resurrection Because he believed that somehow God could bring life even out of his body, which was as good as dead, and even out of the womb of his wife, which was even deader. But nevertheless, our God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. The worship, faith, and trust in God is the process that God uses to take people like us that are dead in our sins and willingly enslaved to all kinds of things that aren't good for us, and to people who are fully and splendidly alive. The resurrection happens in each of us every single time that we say no to sin, and every single time that God asks us to do something really hard that we don't want to do, and we do it. Because every single time, we become a little bit more of the kind of person that God promised we could be, and who we wouldn't be without him. We've talked about how Lent is the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. But if you're really good at math, uh, you'll know that there's actually 46 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. That's because there are six days during Lent, which in the church calendar don't count as Lent. And those are Sundays. Lent is a dark time of self-examination and repentance. It can be discouraging, and it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But Sundays don't count as part of Lent because every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We did a little break from Lent, from the temptation and darkness, and remember why we're here in the first place. Because we know that God's promises will one day come true, even if our faith isn't perfect. 
because we know that this hard work of repentance and making sure we're right with God will be worth it in the end. The same God that brought life out of the half-dead bodies of Abraham and Sarah is the same God who brought life to the dead body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same God who will give life to your dead body, even now, as you struggle against the sin that brings you death every day. And will finally give life to your body when you're raised from the dead in the last day. Let's pray. God of life, you have broken the power of sin and death, trampling over death by death, and upon those in the tombs you have bestowed life. But God, in our sins, we often feel as good as dead. Strengthen us in hope, so that we would know that you will give us life and strength to become what you have created us to be. Amen.